everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're exploring ways to support the health of our eggs and prepare for IVF with fertility nutritionist, Angela Heath. With over 15 years of experience and a specialty in fertility in women over 35, Angela is a wealth of knowledge on the topic of holistic fertility. Welcome to the show, Angela. I'm so happy to be here. We eventually get to chat. I'm really excited about this. We've been chatting online for, I don't know, maybe years trying to connect. And we we have. We have this blooming friendship, and now we know we both love Baz Luhrmann movies, if there's any other Baz Luhrmann fans out there. I was going to say that, and also we are a day apart in terms of our birthdays. That was my next point. We're (laughs) fellow Libra queens with early October birthdays. Yeah. We love talking about fertility, so we're actually such a good match for each other. Absolutely, 100%. We, we, We know... what to talk about at the right times don't we we know to talk about fertility when it's important and we've also got other other things in our lives as well (laughs) which balance that's what we all need absolutely we're here to talk about fertility and learn (laughs) from all of the the 15 years of experience that you have working with women who are trying to conceive and as I was preparing for this episode and I was reviewing your approach to fertility patients I kept seeing this language that I, it really spoke to me and I thought it was so beautiful that you use a bespoke health analysis. And of (laughs) course that means like personalized and individualized care, but it made me feel special when I read that. Who doesn't want a bespoke health analysis? So will you tell our listeners a little bit about what that means and what are some of the most important tests that you utilize when you're creating that personalized analysis? So I guess we work probably in a very similar way, even though you're a naturopathic doctor and I'm a nutritional therapist. In the UK, we generally have different elements of what you've got and we'll have other things. We have less training than you guys because we only have three or four years of training, but we do actually all work in a very similar way. So I will always start off with a full consultation. It's usually an hour to an hour and a half. And within that, I will get as much detail as I need from the client. We call them client instead of patients over this side. Um, And from there, we decide what direction we're going in. So you never know. It's a bit like Tom Hanks says in um, Forrest Gump, uh, life's a box of chocolates. You never know what's going to come to you in terms of the client in front of you until you start reading their health questionnaire and then you start talking to them about what their particular problems have been along the way to trying to conceive so most of the time you go on symptoms and I think symptoms are brilliant because you can kind of see what's happening there but using obviously some tests to back that up are really useful and one of the most important things and I think you'll probably agree with me clear in working the way we do is starting off with blood tests I know it's all over your Instagram about what you use all the time and I'm old school like you I don't go in there with fancy tests to begin with I go in with a really detailed, comprehensive blood test to really look at what's happening in the body. Unlike, you know, endocrinologists or gynecologists who will look at specific areas of the body, the way we work is we will look at everything to try and do a deep dive 
and work out how we can then bespoke the programme based on what's coming up in the symptom checker through the health questionnaire and then also doing some basic blood tests. So from there, we can actually then really look at things like I always use in my practice um, a vaginal microbiome test and also gut testing. And then also in, in many cases, I find that, um, you know, nutrient deficiency is the core of what's happened in terms of the inflammation that's coming out in that particular person. And then also we look at things like how they detox and look at their mitochondrial health as well. And I know you are constantly banging on about mitochondrial health. So we are exactly on the same page there. If you haven't got the energy to move forward, that's a good indication of what might be happening in your egg and sperm health as well. So some really great initial tests like blood tests, which really give me an idea. And then I go to a deep dive there. I always will look at a vaginal microbiome test, a gut test. And if we're working with the guys as well, which we should be um, in all cases, I will look at a sperm test and a DNA fragmentation test, which looks at the actual DNA inside the head of the sperm there. You were right. We operate very similarly. <laughs> I, I want to point out how much I admire your utilization of symptoms and the, the client's history, because there's so much that we can... Um, that we can figure out from careful listening and from that history collection. I mean, even without testing, I, medicine is often about pattern recognition. And once you've seen, I mean, you've been seeing these clients for 15 years, I'm sure in your mind, you can listen to what clients are saying and already have a good idea of what labs should be ordered and what the labs will show. Identifying those patterns, I think is just really powerful. And I also think it's really approachable to focus on the blood test first, at least here in the States, these things tend to be fairly well covered by insurance. They're just so accessible. And then we use that to make more informed decisions about the more pricey functional testing that we might Absolutely. want to utilize. So I, I really appreciate that approach. Mm -hmm. And I think it really serves the patients well. I have to ask you about the vaginal microbiome test <laughs> because this is kind of new to me. So I, right. I, I love to learn from my podcast guests about um, how does that help you to customize your treatment plans? Is it different probiotics that you're giving or how do you use the results? I'm so curious about this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this is something that I kind of added to my arsenal of testing probably way back in 2018. Um, one of the major labs in the UK actually invited a group of us who were involved in female health down to help inform them about what markers they were looking for. And we basically said, look, these are the things that we think are important, that you get tested on urine, and occasionally there's a few tests here and there. And basically what they were doing is building a case towards some of the markers that might have been detrimental to overall fertility. There had been some um, research done from 2012 that looked at particular lactobacillus, and we know that certain lactobacillus across the whole body are different. And they were focusing on those four, particularly the family of four lactobacillus and crispatus, which was one of those. And they saw that when they used crispatus on the tip of the catheter, when they were actually implanting um, embryos, that actually that had made a major difference in terms of that. So it was about the correlation there between that particular lactobacillus and the vagina, which again, we know goes up to the cervix and then into the uh, endometrium 
it's about whether they've got good levels there, which ward off some of the other bacteria. So I kind of call them the bouncers at the door of the nightclub. <laughs> so they let people in that they know are going to be good customers and they can kind of bounce off some others. So you've got strong bouncers on the front of your nightclub, then you're not going to get, you know, the dodgy people coming in that might necessarily cause problems within that. And for, you know, the problem being bacteria, then setting up shop once that cervical plug forms after seven weeks and it traps generally some of that dysbiotic or pathogenic bacteria in there. I'm going to use this bouncer's model. I really like that. It's, <laughs> funny. it's easy to visualize. So are, in patients, I can clearly see where I might want to use this in patients who have a history of, you know, chronic yeast infections or bacterial mm. vaginosis. Are you yeah. finding abnormal results even in patients who have been somewhat asymptomatic? Yeah, absolutely. So they don't, I mean, in the UK, we're not as au fait with bacterial vaginosis as you guys are. So most women generally think they have candida or thrush. And they're unaware of the fact that this is bacterial vaginosis. And generally, they will just go to the chemist and they'll get some canistins cream or something and just think that, oh, that's no problem at all. But actually, some of the researchers looked at how there's been some correlation there between bacterial vaginosis and implantation and obviously some more stuff. So if you've got some of these dodgy guys in that group of things that are there, that means that their friends potentially might be there as well. So it kind of opens the door. And we know that lactobacillus generally will lower the pH of that area. And the vagina is the most acidic place in the whole body. It has to be to get rid of some of the bacteria there. We know that sperm is only 5% in the ejaculate. So a lot of that can also be bacteria, which can then obviously be somewhere that this lactobacillus has to obviously bring down that ph to stop anything getting into that you know amazing area which grows a baby so it's all about making sure that when we've done this test if there's something that they think they might have like thrush or bacterial vaginosis there's always something else it's not just on its own if you've got some of those species there you will have something else and there are things like they look at mycoplasmas they will also look at in the test that I'm particularly looking at they will look at urea plasma which has got some um, research around it being um, detrimental in the first um, to second trimester in terms of miscarriage as well. Mm -hmm. And so when you when you're doing this testing let's say you find someone has an abnormal result mm. And they are, they are trying to conceive or they're ready to get pregnant. How do you counsel them? Does this change the timeline? Should you wait and get the vaginal microbiome in a more healthy composition? Or how, what's that conversation look Absolutely. like? Absolutely. So it does become a little bit more kind of woo-woo there when you're looking into it. And the naturopathic approach is using things like pessaries, which do have a specific species in there of lactobacillus. You may also use things like boric acid as pessaries as well um, to bring the pH down to a more acidic level and kill the candida because boric acid, we know, can actually lower the pH. And that's the mechanism of why it actually works in the first place. Because if you kind of open the door, to use the bouncer analogy again, if they're in there and the bouncers are moving it out, it's much easier to do that than to be more invasive with looking at things like antibiotics, which can then 
completely wipe out a lot of the good bacteria as part of that. So it will be a whole process of, you know, using things that will increase the um, the potential for the pH to actually become more lower. And we want it to be lower because, you know, what feeds the lactobacillus in the first place is much more higher up. It's looking at the actual estrogen, the glycogen side of things. So if you are kind of at different points in your cycle, it will be different there as well. So testing is important at the right times. And also in your cycle as a woman as well. Generally, if you're going towards the menopause, you will have a much higher pH, which then gives you more potential for more bacteria. And we know that from looking at, you know, perimenopausal women, that they tend to get more UTIs. They tend to get more bacteria in there because that protective lactobacillus is actually lowered because the oestrogen is beginning to leave the building a little. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, because you're doing vaginal microbiome testing and gut testing in a lot of your mm. clients, do you find that there's a connection? I, I can see that in practice, that when mm. you have dysbiosis in the reproductive tract, you many people also have something going on in the gut. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of like, it's understandable because it's a, it's a tiny little strip, isn't it, from the <laughs> anus to the vagina. And it's very, very easy for, you know, I see a lot of, um, you know, sort of E. coli in the vaginal microbiome test and also Enterococcus fasalis, which again can be kind of linked back to either sperm um, health there and carried that way, or it could be carried through generally not wiping that area or not being as clean as possible. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things. We're not designed really that great when it comes to that in terms of the female area, are we? Because there is much more potential there for, you know, fecal bacteria to actually get into that area if you're not really careful with it. Right. And that really speaks to the importance of maintaining that acidity mm. in the vagina so that we can remain resilient against these bacteria from other locations. Absolutely. And it's just such an important thing. And there are some test companies in the US now that are looking at it. I think one of the first ones was Juno and one that I'm using, which I've just literally because I speak to clients all over the world and I've got a client in Florida at the moment. And I basically said, right, these are the test places that do it. And you can actually buy that directly yourself as a consumer. And that's the beauty of doing that in the States. In the UK, it has to go through a practitioner because I know we have different kind of mechanisms for things in different areas there. So you can buy that. Um, so people who are listening and, and are interested in the vaginal microbiome, um, there's Juno and Envy that I would probably say is a really good company to use to try and look into what the composition is there in terms of the good bacteria and also what dysbiotic bacteria is there as well. Beautiful. It's a this is this is what we do. It's a body systems approach that's looking mm. outside just the reproductive axis, looking at the gut, like you said, micronutrients, looking at a person's entire body and how all of these systems are communicating. And I think that's the beauty of what we do. Yeah. I wanted to check with you or talk to you about your work in women who are 35 and older. I know that's a specialty that you have. And of course, this is selfish. I turned 36 this year. So <laughs> I'm really focused on reproductive longevity, not just it's not just about fertility, right? We we know that our reproductive hormones are so important for keeping our bones healthy and our cognition yeah. and, and our blood Absolutely. sugar, our metabolism. So I think this is it's about 
our ability to get pregnant when we want to, but it's also about uh, preventing chronic disease and remaining healthy throughout our lifetime. So I'm wondering if if there's anyone who's listening and maybe they're in their early 30s and they're not ready to have children yet, but they know they want children at some point. Do you have some advice for how we can cultivate or maintain longevity in our reproductive health so that when we're ready to conceive, our ovaries and our egg cells are still vibrant? It's a great question. I think that really kind of starts with, you know, are we as women taking control of our own reproductive health by kind of looking at the cycle in its entirety? And I think there's a lot of, you know, Gen Z women now looking at coming off the pill because I know when I was younger and I was at university I was definitely on the contraceptive pill because I managed that whole part of things but now you know women are kind of going hang on a minute I'm fertile for four days of the month you guys are fertile for 365 days of the year why am I on the contraception and I think that's really a conversation that starts the whole thing because if you start to see where your hormones are going and whether there is any kind of you know imbalance there that may have shown up not shown up while you're on the pill because literally your hormones are like that there is no difference there there is no ovulation you don't see that lovely ebb and flow when you're on the contraceptive pill so coming off that will give you an indication of where you are and where your kind of hormones are sitting And if you are seeing some issues there that you may have before you're going on the pill, they'll be right there when you come back off them until we kind of remedy that situation. So if you are thinking about your fertility long term, whether you're in a relationship or not, it's worth kind of having that conversation with yourself saying, am I on this just to kind of help make things easier? Or is this actually masking something for me? Or was it a reason I went on, for example, because I wanted to sort my skin out? You know, if I'm thinking about these longer term things, if I'm getting to 30 and whatever, maybe having that conversation about why you're actually using the method of contraception you are. And then maybe if you're coming off the pill, looking at starting to track your cycle. I think that's one of the most important things, understanding your cycle, the different phases where you're productive in those different phases of your cycle, when you ovulate and some of those signs. Because one of the first things I know as a, as a practitioner, when people come to me and say, oh, I've just come off the pill, when I get really younger women, um, they literally have no clue about this cycle. And we've got this incredible thing going on in our body as women. And we literally have no idea how to manage it or what's happening at any time. You know, I've had clients come to me and say, oh, I've seen this really weird jelly stuff in my pants, you know? And I was like, that's a really good sign. And they're just horrified by it. They're like, oh, what is this? You know, I wiped and it was really strange. And I haven't had that because I was on the pill for 10 years. And, you know, I find really, I really love educating people around that and empowering women and saying, look, these are some amazing signs. It's not gross. It's actually something really healthy. And it's a good sign for you to understand. And taking them through that as part of their empowerment as a you know as a woman understanding their body so yeah absolutely from a functional perspective looking at your body you can look at how your cycle works and look at your you know means of contraception if you've not come off that yet it might be worth looking into it um and generally living a little bit more of a healthier life because i know when people generally tend to you know be at universities or when they're in the 20s up to the 30s they push life to the limits you know they're out drinking 
they're eating junk food, they're staying up late. And I think it's about, you know, maybe slowing all these down a little, not completely stopping them because our bodies are a little bit easier to cope with these things, but sleep, a healthier diet and exercise and movement. And those are the three pillars I generally look at for anyone giving advice to people in their thirties that wants to live a healthier life really. And that will reflect in your fertility because your fertility generally is a reflection of your overall health, you know, and if that overall health isn't great, the fertility is the canary in the coal mine, really. It tells you, you know, that things aren't going well and you need to maybe adjust things a little. That's where we come in to help restore <laughs> that foundational health, right? Yeah. You reminded me, I had a friend text me the other day and she's reading the book, um, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which many mm. of us are familiar with. And yeah. he's reading about cervical mucus and she's texting me like, why am I in my thirties? And I'm just now learning that this is a thing. Yeah. And touched on that. And it's no one talks to us about it. We didn't no. learn in our sex ed at school and our mm. maybe my mom, my mother certainly didn't talk to me about it. No. And so where, where are we going to find this? And I guess that's why we do what we do, but this mm. is knowledge that we deserve. And that mm can empower us to make decisions about our reproductive health. And so I'm so I, I'm so glad that we're having these conversations <laughs> in a public forum where someone will hear it and it will ignite this spark to learn more and this curiosity. So on this on this path of you know women who are in their 30s and they want to support their fertility, I always talk about the role of inflammation and oxidative stress and how these things can kind of drive aging in our ovaries and our reproductive system. Will you talk to us a little bit about the role of nutrition and how nutrition can protect our egg cells from the effects of things like oxidative stress? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of really pair this back to people to help them understand it a little. Um, generally, if you're not supplying all the nutrients in a pipeline, it's going to run dry. So I think that's really easy for people to understand when you're feeding something and you're giving everything at the right time and the right sort of um, amounts really going forward. But if it's difficult to manage that sometimes, people generally live the lives that they do in the modern life now. We're not cooking everything from scratch like our grandparents did. We're not going to bed um, at normal times. We're not getting up all together at, you know, four or five in the morning and going to work and walking to work. I know my my grandmother used to walk to work and she worked in a cotton mill in, you know, Lancashire in the north. And, you know, they all got up at the same time. They all went to work at the same time. They all came home and went to bed and they didn't have, you know, the lights that we have nowadays polluting our environment and causing that change to our hormones. So what we need to do is really try and understand that our our human evolution hasn't changed much from that. What we're doing is we're adding things in that are stressing our body a little bit more. And we have, with the choices that we've got with global food coming to us, I think our body's kind of got overwhelmed with that. We're not sticking to our kind of, you know, ancestral roots in terms of the foods and the seasonal foods we are. So we're not getting those signals, I think, in the body that it's winter with the root vegetables and the carotenoids that we're having through pumpkins and squash and sweet potatoes. And in the summer, we're not having all these kind of fruits and vegetables that give us vitamin C. So 
our bodies used to play a much more seasonal role with the communication system with food that we had back then. And now it's kind of confused a little. So what we need to do is often pair it back and just say, you know, what were your grandparents eating? What's your ancestral kind of foods that you'll be eating? Kind of go back to that. Look at times for when, you know, things may be causing more stress to the body, pollution, the environment you're living at, and try and kind of pair that back a little um, to try and understand where some of this oxidative stress comes from and the role of nutrition in terms of that is just supplying that pipeline to give you those things. And when the pipeline runs a little dry, that's when you get inflammation, you know, that's when there's kind of attrition or abrasion or inflammation. It's because something has kind of gone out of balance in that situation. And that could lead to poor egg health, you know, definitely leads to poor sperm health, which is a really good indication because if you're tired, your sperm's going to be tired as well. Your motility is going to be low. And if you've been sat there with your laptop on your, your lap or your PlayStation or sat, you know, cooking your balls for 10 hours, you know, um, you're going to be ruining the actual shape of the sperm. So it's about things we didn't used to do 100 years ago or even, you know, 80 years ago, which we are doing now which have, is having a major impact on our fertility, which we're used to doing. So it's really difficult to pull that back from people. It's like snatching the toy from the child when you say, listen, you can't do this anymore and you've got to eat a little bit better and you're staying up on your PlayStation till two in the morning and it's just, there's a connection between your eyes and the light and the way your brain works and your hormones. So just explaining all of that for people really kind of you get the wide-eyed look and say well everybody else is doing it and oh wow I had no idea that this you know even really intelligent people you talked to about this this we're so far removed from the way we used to live and the conversations we had in our communities when we were much more together that you know a lot of these things are an example of isolation and life to the excess which we wouldn't have had because our opportunities would have been less back in the day. Earlier, we were talking about my somewhat recent move to the countryside from a big city <laughs> and um, where there's just less stimulation and less light mm. pollution. And it's just a slower pace of life. You get yeah. you grow your food, you get your food from your neighbors. You're more mm. connected to the culture and the community and the people around you. And not saying that everyone needs to like pack up and move out of the city and live this country lifestyle. But I love this idea of returning to your ancestral roots and slowing mm. down and focusing on those foundations of health. I think that's really powerful. And it's a goal I've had for myself. And obviously, um, we're all we're all a work in progress and it's not it's not a perfect system, but I really resonate with that that yeah. goal of reconnecting to that part of us. Yeah, absolutely. We've all got it calling to us, but it's really hard because there is temptation around every corner with you know, staying out late, alcohol, you know, sort of eating junk food that's available on the end of your street, coffee cafes that weren't available, you know, even 20 years ago, just around the corner from me in London. I literally just walk out my street, five minutes later, I can get a cappuccino, you know, and that wasn't the case for my parents. You know, they had nothing available like that. And they all lived a very kind of similar lifestyle in terms of what was available to them. And I think with choice, 
we also then can live our life to excess really so it's about having a bit of restraint restraint and pulling things back and saying okay my ancestors were really fertile this is something new in my generation you know why is that the case let's look at my lifestyle and try and really understand that right I think this is a good um, window for me to ask about when you're working with patients, let's say, who are going through IVF or they're planning an IVF cycle, what are some of the most common health challenges that you are observing in those clients? Are there certain conditions or patterns that are popping up time and time again? Yeah, and I guess this is another example of trying to fix the situation that's broken, trying to work through that next kind of oh well it's not happening naturally let's put you on the IVF round um, situation and I think you don't fix poor egg and sperm by doing IVF what you have to do is go back to basics again it's the same story that I'm saying about the lifestyle so what I normally say with my clients when they are preparing for IVF is this is going to super intense your energy levels you're going to have to need to pull from you know all sorts of corners of your body to try and get the energy to do this because effectively what you're doing is producing 12 months of eggs in 10 to 12 days so to go into that without any preparation is like running a marathon without doing anything and not fueling up and not knowing how to do it properly and to you know help stop injury in case that happens so it's about being mindful of that preparation. And I think in today's society, we don't like to prep for anything. We want an instantaneous thing. We want an ibuprofen because we've got a headache. We want to, you know, get somewhere fast. So the government puts in a fast train that gets you, you know, somewhere in half an hour when it used to take two hours to get there. So I think we're used to that kind of approach. And it's really difficult to kind of pull the reins back on that situation. And I think, you know, if we had that conversation more at media level and at, you know, larger society that you have to prepare yourself and your body to get into a better state of health if you are going to then go down the IVF route would be my idea of a really good situation happening when clients come to me and say, I've been doing two months preparation and it hasn't worked. And these are the things I've done. And I tick down the list and go, great, you've done all the things I would have done with my normal clients. And then now you're looking at IVF, you're two months ahead of the game. We're not going to have to work for four months to kind of get your body ready for that situation. But unfortunately, I think it's an education piece when they come to me about how they need to really look after themselves a little bit more, really. I want to shout this message from the rooftops and make sure that everybody hears it. Whether you're doing IVF or you're just trying mm. to get seen for the first time on your own, I say, I've said this a million times, so it's mm. probably repetitive, but we plan our weddings for a mm. year, right? But yeah. then when we want to be pregnant, we wanted to be pregnant last week and we mm. don't want to do the prep or it doesn't feel accessible. Maybe we don't know how to do the prep. So I think mm. this is such an important point and I wish- this was more common. And I I have this call to action because I'm a I'm a trained as a primary care doctor. So I tell mm. my primary care colleagues, you are the point of contact when someone comes mm. for their annual wellness exam. Even if they're 20, 
ask them what their goals are for their family, mm -hmm. ask them for their goals about their reproductive health so that you can start preparing them now so that they know that there's options available when they are ready to conceive that we can help really optimize their health so that the outcome is as, as beautiful as it can be. Absolutely. And also what we're ignoring in the situation is the emotional side of things. You know, I think sometimes that whole, I want to have a family isn't discussed because they're with somebody that isn't emotionally available for that conversation. So they put that in a little box in their subconscious and they don't want to even think about it. Whereas I think if we were in societies where fertility and having a family was a really big thing from the early 20s and it wasn't shunned, these conversations wouldn't be so horrific to a lot of women in their early 20s. You know, if you kind of speak to a lot of women now, I do. Um, saying, oh, have you thought about family? Or I tell them what I do. They're like, oh, no, I don't have a family for a while. You know, and I know that that might be a different conversation that was had maybe 50 years ago, 100 years ago. A lot of people were more ready for families then and ready to have that conversation much more early in their lives. And I think there, with that extension of that kind of, you know, teenage years and, you know, that culture, people are not coming to this emotional kind of readiness until they're probably in a relationship with somebody in their 30s you know mid 30s really so I think that does have an impact because then right at that point at 35 your fertility is starting to change a little you could be starting to see the beginnings of the perimenopause so it's about you know changing that conversation a little bit earlier on with doctors saying you know have you thought about taking some supplements have you taught, thought about your diet and your lifestyle having these conversations with them that then prepare them even if emotionally they're not ready at that point that's my mission on this <laughs> earth <laughs> we'll do it together but just to kind of recap this timeline piece i know you mentioned four months mm. As yeah. one goal, and that's we talk about this a lot on this show that this journey from a very immature egg cell to an egg cell that is ready to ovulate is about four months. So that tends to be a good timeline. Mm -hmm. If we had six months, if we had 12 months, what a dream! But when mm -hmm. you're working with, with clients who are preparing for IVF, will you just remind us of your ideal runway? So, ideally, I mean, this is laughable because most of my clients come to me and go. I've been trying for three years already. I haven't right. got time for this, Angela. You know, as much as I'd love to spend six months with you going through every test possible to try and work out what the straw is in the camel's back with my, um, you know, fertility, they often say I want to get pregnant immediately. And I just have to really kind of work on this psychology with actually this is the timeline in terms of making healthy sperm. This is the timeline for making healthy eggs and reducing the oxidation that attacks them as soon as they pop out of the follicle. So if you've got a good army behind you that supports that and wards off that oxidation as soon as they're out, you're going to be in a much better situation for that really healthy baby. And it's not just about getting the baby, it's about your family line. And that's what I've got to remind them. These, you know, if you have a daughter, you're, you are carrying your grand, grandchildren, your whole egg supply line is basically through that so you need to make sure you do the preparation now four months is nothing to make your babies and your family really healthy for you know generations to come and I think if I put it that way sometimes it really sort of you know starts to 
make a difference and it sinks in a little but I think the guys generally can be a little bit more difficult because they're quite set in their ways about what they want to do in terms of giving up alcohol and the foods that they eat and their kind of you know habits that they have the women literally will be like yeah that's fine but all I can give you is a couple of months and often when I get in there a little I can then open the door a little bit wider and say look we've just tested something else it doesn't look ideal let's work on that a little bit more so ideally for egg health and sperm health I want a minimum of 90 days and four months is is the starting point for that if we can go on to maybe five or six months the longer a client's with me the better the outcome is really in terms of me testing their bloods again to look at the changes in some of their sex hormones and their thyroid health and if we look at a vaginal microbiome you know we need to do a month of preparation and then retest to see if that's ready to go so I kind of put the reins on them and literally say let's do two tests first initial one and then we'll see if it's improved and then we'll see whether we can give things the green light on that really. That's very helpful. And this transgenerational health piece, I have two daughters mm -hmm. and both of my daughters were conceived while I was doing my doctoral program. And as you mm -hmm. can imagine, the conditions yeah. just weren't ideal. And I think about this all the time. And I, I wish for myself that I had taken those months to be more intentional because of the way that it can impact the generations to come. But we all do our best with the setting that we have. But I think that's a really powerful concept. We've mm -hmm. talked about the prep piece, but I also wanted to briefly touch on what what clients might do in terms of nutrition, let's say after they've had an embryo transfer and now they're in their mm -hmm. the dreaded but also <laughs> beloved two-week wait. Are there some recommendations that you have for that population? Yeah, absolutely. So it's trying to avoid um, basically any oxidative stress and making sure that you are upping your protein levels. I know over this side of the pond, they're really keen to get you to have a pint of full fat milk, which drives me nuts because it's probably one of the biggest intolerances that most people I know have is casein, lactose and whey. So guessing them basically on a pint of full fat milk during that preparation when they're going through the IVF and then saying you know just you know make sure you're healthy afterwards is about as good as the IVF clinic's advice is on on how to sort their diet out but for me it's about focusing on you know things that boost up progesterone which is going to be the hormone that really helps support that implantation and helps the you know the baby to grow and also things that help the liver to detox a little. Mm -hmm. So lots of green cruciferous vegetables, lots of, you know, carotenoid strong vegetables. So the orange ones that we talked about before, which are really good for building progesterone up um, and B6. Lots of things like meat, um, you know, red meat is, you know, quite demonized in a lot of cases. And a lot of my clients come to me and say, oh, I, I don't eat red meat, thinking they're actually appeasing me and making me feel better about the situation. But I'm really keen for people because basically red meat has CoQ10 in there, which is really important for supporting mitochondrial health. Energy is what you need to grow that baby in the early stages with folate and with choline as well. So, you know, really keen for people to eat lots of eggs um, to support that choline production and you know lots of folate to um, help with that cleavage of folate really so really important to get a kind of rainbow of color there 
with the purples, the reds, the oranges and the greens, and just making sure that you're having at least 10 um, varied vegetables and two fruit a day, preferably the, the berries because they have a lot of antioxidants in them. The more sour they are, the better for you. And, uh, you know, just working on ticking off how you're eating on a daily basis, put it up on your fridge, tick how many vegetables you've had and go, oh, do you know what? I've had the same squash that I've been using in the fridge for the last three days. Let's change that up a bit. Let's have some sweet potato. Let's have a different kind of pumpkin that might be a little bit different from that. And just mixing things up. And that's why having things like organic uh, veg boxes are really good because they're seasonal and they'll give you different things every week. So it's about using your creative thought and changing what you're eating and not being kind of, you know, set in your ways about the three meals that you rotate on a weekly basis and just going, do you know, what? I love that meal, but I need to start looking at my recipe list and adding some of these vegetables. And that's what I do as a, as a practitioner. I give them a list, a traffic light list of things that are good for fertility. And I say, just make a, you know, a meal with a combination of these things together and just here are some recipes which have them in, but that's really up to you to start being more creative because that's where it comes from. If I start dictating to you, you're going to be sending me texts in the supermarket saying, is this okay to eat, Angela? You know? Well, this is the perfect lead into my final question for you today, which is a fun question. I love to end episodes with a fun question and mm. the holiday season is upon us. Mm. And so are there some festive fertility friendly foods that we should include on our holiday menus? Absolutely. I love this period as you do all the way up from <laughs> autumn to Christmas. It's fantastic. Yes. Um, and I think in the UK, we have incorporated some stuff from the States that you guys have. So things like cranberries are amazing for helping to ward off bacterial issues in the bladder. So I, at this time of year, I usually freeze some berries. Part of that are cranberries and I will put them in my smoothies because they're quite good for, you know, stopping UTIs, which may happen if you're having more sex around the holiday period as well. Um, and also things that have, you know, a strong sort of orange colour to that. I'm obsessed with orange at the moment, but um, I think things like salmon roe are really good because they're stacked full of choline. And that's also something that's very good for building up your um, omega-3 and supporting general inf inflammation and reducing that down. So salmon roe is a good thing for boosting levels of choline there. Eggs are also great um, in any type of way you want to do them in the holiday seasons, as long as there's not alcohol with it. Um, and then, you know, things like sprouts, you know, they're not just for Christmas as well. I'm having sprouts tonight for my dinner. I'm roasting some sprouts and I'm having them with quinoa and a mix of vegetables and everything else. So, you know, things like quinoa are really good because they're a non-gluten um, grain and you can just mix a load of vegetables with that and just you know add some protein on top of that and maybe add some pomegranates pomegranates are also an amazing um, source of antioxidants and you can work through things like the peel which are actually really good for um, getting rid of dysbiotic bacteria so things like if you've had a stool test and something like Klebsiella comes up pomegranate is actually really good for getting rid of some of those really nasty dysbiotic 
bacteria um, and you can use the pith, the peel and you can also use the lovely jewels that um, are the fruit part of that as well. This menu is going to be beautiful. And I'm even thinking <laughs> you mentioned the squashes and the pumpkins and all of the soups and baked mm. things that you could make with those. Beautiful. Well, if anybody makes their fertility friendly holiday meals, share a picture and tag us so that we can mm. see what you're making. Listeners, thank you for spending time with us. It's always a pleasure to be a trusted source of information. I want to extend my gratitude also to our show's producer, Paola Martini. And Angela, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and just being so lovely to, to connect with and chat. I've had such a great time with you today. Thank you so much. No worries at all. I've absolutely loved talking to you. And it's, it's you know, definitely been a really interesting conversation. And it, it as podcasts go, you go all over the place. And I think that's the best way to do things, isn't it, really? That is the best way. And we will keep spreading the word about preconception health to create health and longevity into your lifetime. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast, where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.